Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. A warm welcome to Pastor Dave, which should say Apostle Dave Kellerman from Kelowna as he comes and shares God's word. God love you, buddy. God bless you. Let's have a good night. Thank you. Amen. Enjoy. Well, <laughs> thank you. Well, it's so good to be with you. You know, this church is famous. You know that, eh? You know that everyone who comes here goes away speaking about how wonderful you are. And uh, you, have, you have made his name famous, but you have also honored uh, your pastor and his wife by the way in which you function. Um, you honor the city in the way in which you function. Uh, there's very few churches that I know that carry the generosity of heart and spirit the sacrificial uh, heart to serve, and the excellence. I'm just really, really privileged to be here um, and to have the opportunity to speak to you. I know that this doesn't happen often. I was on my way into Ottawa after the conference and uh, I said, Pastor, I just want to join you. I just want to hang out with you on Sunday. And he said, here, why don't you preach? Well, that's, that was beyond my, uh, my, uh, my intentions. I just loved hanging out with your, your pastor and his wife and their leadership team. Uh, you have something to be very proud of. And uh, I know that uh, as you are growing, as they're growing up in God, as they're continuing to move and uh, uh, take on the responsibilities that God has given them, it just causes you to move up too. And uh, we're just, we just speak of you well throughout the whole nation. So thank you so very much for your kind uh, opportunity. Uh, some, uh, some of even the board members this, uh, this week, I was in the elevator and, and uh, came down uh, to the main floor and uh, I was in with some board members and uh, I got out of the, uh, the elevator and uh, one had said, um, is Dave Kellman gonna be with us this week? Hadn't recognized me. For some of you who don't recognize me, because I've preached here before, uh, we had a mission uh, uh, project in uh, Kelowna at the beginning of the year uh, that we raised money for Israel and Vietnam and all kinds of places. And the idea came out through the young people that we should shave David. So it was a Shave Dave project. My name's Dave. And uh, some of the older saints who, I've been there for 36 years now, they got really upset that, that the young people wanted me shaved. Is the last time I was that bald was 65 years ago. And uh, they said, no, we're going to save Dave. So it became a save versus shave Dave. How many of you know who won? <clears throat> Some of my friends came up to me and they said, we love you, Pastor, but we want to see what you look like bald. So that's what happened. Uh, I remember my grandchildren... They came upstairs while I had a barber. I've been trying to get to church for 35 years. And uh, he came up uh, to shave me that day. He came to church. He said, you want me to come to church in the morning too? So he sat right in the front row with me. And it, if it was just for that, to get shaved for him to be in church, that was, that was great. But uh, I remember my grandchildren came up from downstairs with the children's ministry and they saw Papa being shaved, you know, Iroquois look and... And uh, they had candies. I don't know who was giving them candies down there, but that's not always the best. Uh, but they came up and offered Papa candy. This will make you feel better, Papa. <laughs> so but when the young people had drawn up a Photoshop of me with no hair, just eyebrows, and you know, the only place I grow hair these days are my eyebrows, my ears, and my nose. I thought, I don't like that look whatsoever, so I thought I'd grow a goatee, and now I, I realize now I'm, I'm operating incognito. Nobody recognizes me, so it's great. You look good. Thank you. 
They say I've lost 10 years. I don't know where they went, but they're gone. I love the church. I was a pastor's kid, am a pastor's kid. I've got four generations of pastors in my, my life. I lived on top of the church, underneath it and beside it, and I listened through the vents. I shared that this morning. And I heard people say things about my mom and dad as pastor that I shouldn't have heard. But with all of that, and I do understand, I think you do too, that the church is imperfect. If you are perfect, don't join it. You'll mess it up. <laughs> We're all a bunch of ex-nobodies, right? That are becoming somebody in Christ to tell everybody about Jesus, right? So we're, we understand our place and our role. We understand that, that the church has a lot of flaws, but it's the family. And uh, we got to learn to get along. And we need to know how to work together to accomplish what God's called us to do. And so the church, with all of its, all of its dysfunction at times, is still one of the most important institutions that has ever been created for every nation in the world. And uh, I was reading this portion of scripture from Psalm 2, and I want to read that with you today. It says, why are the nations in an uproar or turmoil against God? And why do the people devise a vain and hopeless plot? How many of you know there's lots of public policy out there that is not for the good of the country? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break apart their divine bands of restraint and cast away their cords of control from us. You don't think that's going on? It is. And there has been oh, probably over the last 20 years a a tremendous movement right across the nation to break free from the cords of God, godliness and righteousness. And seeing them as restrictions and control and, 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 and um, reigning on the parade of our freedom. One man said, there's gonna come a time where evil becomes so evil that evil men resent it. And I believe with all my heart, we're fast approaching that moment where even those who I would say I'm not on the same side with on many issues are beginning to resent the stuff that's beginning to be put on the, the, the nation of Canada. So in the scripture, he says, he who is enthroned in the heavens, how many of you know we have someone enthroned in the heavens? He laughs at their rebellion. The sovereign Lord scoffs at them, and in supreme contempt, he mocks them. I have an anointed, and I have installed my king upon Zion. He said to me, you're my son. This day I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll assuredly give you the nation as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. In the midst of all the stuff that's happening, there is a king in Zion. A king of kings, a lord of lords that we serve. We have a personal relationship with. And as much as I'm proud of my Canadian heritage and that I'm a citizen of Canada, I'm much more proud that my citizenship is in heaven. And as, as, as proud as I am of, of, of some of the culture of Canada and the, the multiculturalism and the blessing of bringing the diversity of the, of, of the people of Canada together, I'm I'm, I'm proud of the, the kingdom of God and what the body of Christ can do in healing and restoring and bringing races and genders and people together to love God. So I love the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? And they had all kinds of ideas about who this Jesus was because the plan of the Father was I'm gonna send someone who's actually going to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he's going to take up residence. And he is going to bring his kingdom to this, this world. He's going to become the King of Zion. He will take the nation as, nations as his inheritance. 
When Jesus came, they said, who are you? It was Peter at that time that spoke up and said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, son, uh, you know, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And that's, as we shared in the early service, that's the way the spirit world connects with the natural world is through thought. And we have to discern those thoughts. That's why we're in the word of God and the word of God's in us, because the more we hear about how God speaks, the better we understand when God is speaking to us. The Holy Spirit is, is ministering into our life. And so at that point in time, Jesus was helping Peter understand that the thought that came into his mind had a source, and that source was Heavenly Father. And he was commenting something that was the truth, and Jesus affirmed that. And he said, upon this rock, this understanding of who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I'll, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Then he went on to say that he was going to be captured and he was going to be crucified and, and rise from the dead. And of course, Peter, when he heard about this, he said, not so, Lord, this is not going to happen. And this guy who had just heard from God now is hearing from another side. Of course, Jesus responded and replied to him and said, uh, listen, uh, Peter, uh, Satan, get behind me. You're not minding the matters of God. You're minding the matters of men. You're, you're falling into an idea that is contrary to the will of God for my life. So Peter, poor Peter. One moment he's hearing from heaven, hearing from God. The next moment he's hearing from Satan, but he bursts out both. And I mean, like it's not that we haven't been there, right? We're all in that boat. But Jesus made a very important statement in the midst of it. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. As I have looked back over 20 years of 30, 40 years now, ministry 45, I haven't seen too many successes by the church in Canada. As a matter of fact, we tend to be our own worst enemy. And when the government looks at our positions and our theology, they oftentimes compare theology to theology from the liberal and the conservative side and say, when you guys get your act together, then you come to the table and talk to us. They use us to defeat ourselves. When the body of Christ truly, I believe this with all my heart, if the church of Jesus Christ in Canada was united, there'd be nothing that couldn't be changed. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You know that gates are not an offensive weapon. They're a defensive weapon. They're the most vulnerable part of a city. You don't go through the walls. You go to the portal of the, of the doors and the gates. You knock them down and you have access to a city. God is saying, Jesus was saying, the church that I built will have power overcoming power to be able to break through those constraints of the world systems and their thinking and their strategies and ideas and philosophies and be able to take capture of that culture and bring it under submission to the kingdom of God. I have not seen that church. I've seen a, a weakened church and it concerns me when I see the weakened nature of the church, the lack of power. I'm not saying that that's everywhere. There are places in the world and there are distinct, uh, distinct nations in the world that are grappling with this and breaking through. But I want that for Canada. I want that for my nation that I love. Colson said this, he said, the church is the only institution established by God that says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is the only institution that God refers to that is established by him that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The strategies will not be able to overcome it. It has, has great enough truth to set us free. The deceits and the imaginations and the ideas and the convolutions of, of thinking and the perversions of thought that are in our culture will not be able to overpower the truth that is resident in the church because of the word of God and because of Christ. All right. 
I believe that. Joel Osteen said, you can be committed to the church but not be committed to Christ, but you cannot be committed to Christ and not be committed to his church. We've got to get that straight. I don't worship the church, I worship God. But you are my family. We are the church, not bricks and stones. We are people with the temple of the Holy Spirit. We comprise the church. We are living, vibrant, breathing members. And when we talk about the church, we're talking about us. Not some sort of institution that's out there, but the kingdom of God that's inside of us. And we all have ideas about what the church is, just as it was in Jesus' day. And I gave a a slide here. Some see it as a body with one head, many members, one flock, one shepherd, many sheep, one nation, one king, many citizens. We have many analogies to describe what the church should be. And of course, there are, are those in the body of Christ that would emphasize one or the other. If you come to our church, we're a church family. I get that. I understand that. Well, we should all be a family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Mothers and fathers in Christ, all building that family integrity, uh, committed long-term, covenantally to each other. But we're not just that. We're, we're, we're living stones in a, in a wall, a construction that, that requires your participation. God has placed you in this fellowship, this family. You have a role. You have a responsibility. And so there are those that, that link church to the whole dynamic of, of building, of, of building together. And everybody's structured and everybody's gifts and anointings and callings working together to create this. There are others that see it as an army. Come on. We're carrying our, the weaponry of the spirit. From Ephesians 6, we know what we can do is we stand together and we are not afraid to go out to battle. We talked about how we battle this morning. Uh, but we're not just an army and we're not just a family. It's just the same thing with our understanding of God. God is not just your father. There are over 30 to 60 definitions of who he is as he, as he continues to reveal who he is throughout scripture. He is judge. He's a fearless warrior. He's the everlasting one, the counselor, the, 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 the Lord of breakthrough. I mean, you can go on and on and on. We, we, and sometimes we just settle into one idea of God and worship him in that way. I make it very, very clear in my prayer life to address God according to who he's revealed himself to me to be. I am his son and sometimes I talk to him like that. Father, I love you. Dad, I love you. You know? But I also have a relationship to the Holy Spirit. I have a relationship to Jesus. I have a relationship to God on many different levels. And when I need counsel, I go to the Holy Spirit, who is the one who comes alongside the paraclete and gives me counsel and aid from heaven. When I don't know how to pray about something, I'll go to the Holy Spirit. When I know how to fight, I call on the Lord of hosts. Come on. I, be, I understand the more I grow in God, the more the grace of God manifests itself. Grow in the knowledge and the grace of God. And I believe that that's the intention of heaven, actually. I think that truth functions on true tracks. That's, that's God. There's this part of me that says, Jesus, you're everything. How many, we've talked about that, right? Jesus, you're absolutely everything to me. And from my perspective, that's the truth. He's Jesus, he's Lord, he's Savior, he's Deliverer, he's Provider. I can go on and on talking about him. From my perspective, it's all about him. Remember we used to sing that song? It's all about you, Jesus. But that's only half the truth. The other half of the truth is it's all about you. From his perspective, it's all about you. From your perspective, it's all about him. The cross was not for him, it was for you. Heaven is being built not for you, for him, for you. Come on, the blood was shed not for him, for you. 
And when we begin to understand the dynamics of destiny, we begin to understand that really from his perspective, it's all about me. So I can, I can go up to him in the morning and say, hey, it's all about me today, Lord. What you're going to do in my life, what you got planned for my life as I serve your eternal purposes. You've got a plan, but you've got me in that plan. So what do you want me to do as I participate with you? Because it's all about me from your perspective. That, that blesses me when I think about my identity in Christ. So we need to get our understanding about the church right, God right. And, and one of the challenges that we faced about the church is that when Jesus began to describe and say, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I have to look at my culture and say, are we actually building the church that he called to be built? Because if we're not prevailing against the gates of hell, there's something wrong with our understanding of church. When Jesus used the word church, he used a Greek word to describe church. It's called the ekklesia. Would you, would you say that after me? Ekklesia. E-K-K. Ekklesia. Now we, we translate that many times as, well, we talk about ecclesiology, which is the study of the theology of the church. Get that? Some people even refer to the ecclesia as the church building, but it's not that. The ecclesia was a Greek term that Jesus used to help a culture become familiar with what he wanted to do because they understood the word ecclesia. He did not say, we're going to build a synagogue. That we're going to build a social connection group, a network. He's not using other terms. He looked for a term in his culture to describe what he was going to build that everybody understood. 300 years before Christ came, there was a man called Alexander the Great. Many of you remember the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire. And Alexander the Great was a young military genius. And he conquered the world in a very, very short period of time. And then died. Died very young. When he died, you know, the empire was split up into four sections. However, the word ecclesia had to do with the, the Greek city-state. And the Greek city-state, if you were a citizen of that city-state, you would assemble together. You would be called and assemble together in that city-state. And you would come to the gates of the city and there you would make decisions about the, the life of the entire city. The culture the laws, the political, the democratic, the, the language, everything was at stake at the city, at the front of those city gates. And so the Greek citizens understood what an ecclesia was. It was a called out parliamentary uh, assembling of citizens to talk about how we're going to do business in the city state. Jesus used that word to describe church. Now, I'm going to have to, for the sake of having, uh, you know, working through this, is, is separate 21st century Canadian church from Ecclesia. Because I don't see them as the same. I don't see what we're building today is what Jesus wanted to be built. And as a result, I see powerlessness and the gates of hell prospering rather than the gates of hell coming down. So when... Alexander the Great would conquer a city or nation, he would set up his ecclesia. And that ecclesia oftentimes was some of the men from his own raiding party or his military. He'd leave those soldiers behind because they were loyal to the state. And they would set up an ecclesia and their role was to bring the kingdom of Greece to that city. Their responsibility was to take the language of Greece, the, the DNA, the culture, uh, the laws of Greece, the politics and the democracy of Greece, and bring it to that city and establish a Greek, uh, the, the Greek uh, empire. They understood that. As a matter of fact, they would often call those ecclesias by the name of Alexander. So you know of the most famous being Cairo today, Egypt, that used to be known as what? 
Alexandria. They called that ecclesia after Alexander. What do we do in our churches? Windsor Christian, it's after Christ. It's a Christian church. We recognize who is in charge. There are over 1,500 ecclesias that Alexander the Great created. You can read about them online and they're listed. Many of them still in existence to this day. And you can go into Iraq or Iran or, 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 or Syria or, or all of those countries and you'll see where he took over and he established his ecclesia that represented the Greek empire. So when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, he was defining something in a way that the culture itself would understand. They knew what Greek, the, the Alexander the Great had done and they knew the expanse of that empire, but Jesus said, I'll build my ecclesia. And as soon as he rose from the dead and that commission was given to his people to go out, that commission was, was real. You go out and preach the gospel to every creature. You go into every community, every, every nation of the world and establish my kingdom called the ecclesia, the church. Aren't you glad that almost every place you go in the world, you can find the ecclesia? The empire of Christ has exploded globally. Come on. Anywhere I go, I can find my family. Isn't that wonderful? I'm part of the ecclesia of God. So when they went out, they would have an impact. And the scripture says they, where they went, they would turn the world upside down. Or I talked this morning about turning it right side up. They had impact upon individuals, influence upon city-states. In some cities, the Bible makes it very clear that the number of disciples worked from the ones and the twos and the thousands to the myriads, where in reality, they'd come into a city and the whole city was saved. That's the impact of, of Christian community going out into the culture. And when they went there, they didn't set up a synagogue. They set up the ecclesia. And that ecclesia was very clear. We're going to bring the culture of heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Their purpose was to take the, the, the dynamics and the DNA of heaven and bring it to earth. So if you were forgiven or healed, you just got in contact with heaven, the kingdom of heaven. They carried the kingdom in their heart. And they brought it through the ecclesia and they changed and influenced culture. The modern 21st century church in Canada is bought into the separation of state and church. Never in the Bible. We're the ecclesia. The ecclesia has an impact on individuals. When Jesus comes into your life, it changes your whole life. It comes into your marriage, it changes your marriage and brings it under a supernatural level of a system of operation. If you're, a, if you're an employer and you, you're back at the work and you come onto the site, they're going to recognize something happened to you when you gave your life to Jesus. All of a sudden there's forgiveness and there's mercy and there's, and, and, and there's order and there's, there's godliness that begins to come in. Righteousness begins to, to be built into your business as that system comes under the influence of the kingdom of God. The same thing happens with our schools. It should happen with our, with our political process. It should happen in the welfare stage, in the banking. We can go on and on and on. The fact of the matter is that when the church began to function like the ecclesia, all culture was impacted. I mean, we know that Jesus touched the leper. He broke with cultural mandates. When he stood before Caesar, he acknowledged him. He didn't disrespect him, but he knew who he served and he served his father, not Caesar. He was not going to bow to Caesar. He was going to bow to his father. And when it came to 
to making an influence upon society, we, we see the amount of influence that they began to, to have upon all of society. They changed it. They challenged it. They, they grew it. They built things that were, were not within the culture of the, at the time. They elevated the, level, the, the position of a woman. Of course, in Christian circles today, we're, we're, there's neither male or female. We're joint heirs together. We're, we walk co-equally before the, before the Father. My wife walks alongside of me, not behind me. Every culture that has been invaded with Christianity has elevated the status of women. They dealt with the issues of divorce within the church where it was so easy for men to get rid of their, their wives and then leave them in poverty as widows with nothing being taken care of. That, that was changed by the church culturally invading marriage. When there was a plague in a community, people would check out of town. They didn't want to get sick, but you know the ecclesia. The ecclesia knows that, hey, once we were dead, now we're alive. You can't kill us twice. I was crucified with Christ, but now I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the, that's the power of Christianity within our world system, by the way, where the world fears the church rising up and actually becoming the ecclesia because they know that we've got nothing to lose. You kill me, I win. Come on, you kill me, I win. I'm already dead. How do you kill a dead man? The whole world fears the church rising up and becoming the ecclesia. But they would come into those cities where, where people would leave and they'd take care of the sick. And that was the start of hospitals. Because they weren't afraid of the sick. If they died, they, they graduated. But they knew the power to heal. They weren't afraid of sickness. And it changed the culture of the empire. Prisons were, were impacted by the church. I often talk about this. We don't understand prisons like, like it was in that time where, you know, Paul would be lowered into a pit. That was prison. There was no way out, no ladder. You were lowered by rope into this pit. Some of them, I've been in 2,000 years uh, of age and they, you still smell human feces. Darkness. That's why Paul had a difficulty writing at times from prison because uh, the oil lamps, there was just not enough light. But, it, but if you didn't have someone visit you and give food to you every day, you died. They didn't come with breakfast, lunch, and supper. They didn't have hot chocolate and, you know, hamburgers on Saturday night in a movie. If you weren't fed, you died. And he writes about that in his memoirs, in the epistles. And he talks about the days he went without food. And it appeared like no one cared about his life. And he writes about those who came and, and, and ministered help to him when he had need. But in those prisons, there was no separation with men and women. It was the church that created the separation. It was the church that visited those who were in prison that had no one to care for them and fed them. It changed the prisons. The ecclesia. The ecclesia changed the theaters where people were killed for sport. You just go and, you know, we watch it on television, but they watched it for real. People dying, and that was just sport and entertainment. But... The Christian looked at that and said, no, the human life is valuable. And they came against that and shut it down. When women didn't want their babies, they would leave their babies on, on, the, on the mountainside in a for a sacrifice to their gods. Who would pick up the babies? The ecclesia. The ecclesia would go and take the babies under themselves and raise them up. That was the beginning of orphanages. Who created orphanages? Education. You can go on and on and on and talk about the changes and the shifts that were done by the ecclesia in shifting culture. And we read in Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas came into a, a, a community 
It says they were turning the world systems upside down. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about it that it's in Christ. Uh, it was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That word rec- a world there is cosmos. It refers to systems. It doesn't refer to just people. It refers to systems. One of the, the motto of our organization back in Cologne is to, to reach and to raise up and to release kingdom-minded citizens who are competent to represent their faith in all spheres of culture. That's who we are. Because that's the ecclesia. That's what God intended. But the reason why they turned the world upside down is told in verse 7 of Acts 17 when he says, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They're saying that there is no other king than Jesus. Wow. I wish we had that today. No other king than Jesus. No willingness to compromise. I'm not going to compromise the ecclesia for relevance with culture. I'm not going to just resist culture and go in and, and, and turtle away and do, uh, adopt a Dunkirk mentality of trying to escape the enemy either. We need to engage our culture. We need to redeem our culture and bring it back to its original intentions. The Canadian church has gone from changing the world to identifying with the world and has moved from engaging the world to protecting itself from the world. Where is the church that Jesus said he would build? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. The world says to the church, you can have heaven, but the earth belongs to us. But that's not what the ecclesia says to the world. Both heaven and earth belong to him. And we serve Jesus, our king. I'm not living to go to heaven. I'm living to bring heaven here. See, there's three positions that you can take. And I used it this morning as as a way of illustrating. You remember a man called Lot. Lot was a friend of Abraham. He was part of his family. And when he connected with Abraham, his life began to prosper. And then they began to fight among themselves for the land because their, 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 their goods and everything began to outweigh what the land could produce. And Abraham turned to his, uh, his nephew Lot and said, hey, you choose wherever you want to go. God bless you. I'll take whatever's left. And when Lot looked out, he saw the very best and he chose Sodom as his home. Brought, moved all of his family and all of his, all of his, uh, his employees and, and those who worked for him into Sodom. The Bible says that Lot's soul was vexed with what he saw. He looked at Sodom and he saw the evil of the city. Almost everything that you can possibly think of was going on in the city. Over a period of time, though, his kids began to adopt the the mentality of the city. His wife adopted the mentality of the city. His employees and those who worked for him adopted the DNA of the city. And even though Lot sat at the city gates and was in a position of influence, he could have shifted and changed the culture of the city. As an elder of the city, he said nothing and did nothing. And ultimately judgment came to that city because he tried to stay relevant and at peace with a system that was not of God. He wound up escaping with his own skin, but he lost his family. I'm going to tell you right now that's what's at stake in the body of Christ right across this nation is the family. I am deeply concerned for my grandchildren and what they're having to grow up with and the school systems they're having to endure. Right now, by the grace of God, we have a school system with online education from K to 12. It's touching 35,000 kids. We've got 5,000 of them in the public school system where the, where the government has given us an opportunity to bring our, our world, Christian worldview in science and math into the public school system. I want to see that reverse revival. I want to see a restoration and a reformation occur. 
I don't know how long God will give us the opportunity to do it, but while the, the doors way, stay open, I'm running through with everything I have to have an impact. However, Lot was in a situation where he's vexed and I go to church after church and I find out that people are vexed with what's going on in their country. But their vexation is doing nothing to change or shift their city. And as a result, what's happening is they may save their own skin, but they're losing their families. Are you a lot? Are you a lot? There's a second man. This man is Jonah. You remember that. I believe in Jonah. By the way, Jesus referred to him. He believed in Jonah. I believe in Jonah. Believe in the story. God spoke to him to go east. He went west. I got a mission for you. Go to a city. Give them an opportunity to repent. I, I care about those people. I want to see repentance. He took off the opposite direction, went on a Mediterranean cruise. You know the story. He was sleeping in the middle of disaster and chaos while they're throwing everything over to, over the, overboard. He's sleeping. They realized, they connected the dots. Listen, there's something wrong with that guy down there. He should have some more fear in him than we have. They went to him and he says, I know what the problem is. I'm the problem. Throw me overboard, you get rid of the problem. Can you imagine a prophetic gift so rebellious that I don't care if I die, I'm not going to go and fulfill that mission. I don't care about those people. They can go to hell. The hardness of heart, the prejudice. Assyria was not, they were not nice people. When they conquered a city, they'd take the leaders of the city out, they'd skin them alive and place their skins on the city walls to dry where people would come in and go, this will happen to you if you rebel against our rule. They were not nice people. So I understand Jonah's feelings about, I don't want you to save them. I want you to nuke them. I want you to get rid of them, right? But that, how many of you know God so loved the... And he knows the timing of people in cities to come to Christ. Do you believe he has a time and a season for Windsor to come to Christ? Kelowna to come to Christ? For a nation to turn in a day? I believe he has those seasons. That's what keeps my fire alive and my hope. But here's, here's Jonah going the opposite direction. And even when God sent a taxi, remember the taxi. He's swallowed by a fish. It takes him three days. Come on, if I saw Jaws, I'm repenting right away. He's swallowed. He's in there for three days before he thinks, well, I'm going to be here forever. I might as well give up a sacrifice of praise and say, okay. And God delivered him to his, and he went. But when he went, he wanted, he preached a sermon. He spent no time developing. He didn't want any anointing on that sermon. He didn't want anyone to come to the altar. He wanted God to kill him. And he just went and said, repent. And the whole city repented. That gives me hope. Because I'm not a rebellious prophet. I want to see cities come to Christ. I want to see nations bow. But here, a rebellious prophet who preaches an unanointed message has the whole city come to Christ, come to God. But are you Jonah? Are you resisting that message to a city? Or are you a Nehemiah? I love Nehemiah, but there's some things you need to know about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a, you know, he's a wine, he's a servant in the king's court and he's, his job was to drink it if he died, the king didn't drink it. If he drank it and lived, the king would drink it. So every day he was putting his life on the line for the king. And every day he was listening to the problems of the empire being solved. So he was in the right place at the right time with the right people learning how to build cities. Like that was God's structure for his life. There was a purpose. Even though he was a slave, he was purposely set by God into that position. Then he hears about the state of Jerusalem. Walls are down. The gates are burned Marauders are coming in, taking all the food that's left. People are starving. Women are eating their children. Look at Lamentations and you'll see the picture. There's no sound of praise, no song in the city anymore. All the leaders have left the city. 
And he cries. Oh, that's good. I've seen the church cry. You seen the church cry? Oh, God. Intercessors cry? Yeah. Well, that's one part of the process. You need to be impacted with what he's impacted with. You need to grieve with what he's grieving about. You need to feel deeply about what is in the heart of God. That's true. But it doesn't stop there. You see, if you're really, truly an intercessor, then God will give you a solution. That's the problem with praying. That's why people don't like to pray. If I pray, God will tell me something to do about the thing I'm praying about. Come on, be honest. Tell him, not me. And Nehemiah now has a crisis because he's been given a solution that might cost him his life. He has to go to the king. What's going to happen? You know the story how God gives him favor, but he had to act on it. And I talk about it this morning, that if you're praying about something and God gives you a solution and you stay praying, you're in rebellion. There's a time to get up from prayer and do something with what God has told you to do. And that may cost you something. It may mean your life. It may mean me going to prison. We cannot be afraid of the cost. Nehemiah, within 52 days, restores the city by the, by the strategy of heaven. What people were walking around ruins for years and years, up to 70 years, walking around ruins. He goes and rebuilds a city. It took that king three years to take. He builds it in 52 days. Can, can a city be built? Are you a lot that is more interested in saving your own skin? Are you Jonah that are carrying, is carrying prejudice in your heart? And you just want the nation to go to hell? Or are you a Nehemiah that says, God, just whatever I got, it's yours. And I caught your heart. Begin to pray. You download something from heaven. Tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it, Lord, even if it costs me my life. That's the cross. We're called. We're called to stand up and be God's men and women. We're called to be not the 21st century church. We're called to be the ecclesia that has a profound effect on generations and cities and nations. Do you hear me? I've decided. I love that little film about baptism. I've decided t-shirts everywhere. This is my decision. I've decided to be the ecclesia, God. The church that wars in its spirit with the world, that engages heaven in prayer, that connects with supernatural solutions and then touches hurting humanity, transforming culture. That's what I'm committed to. That's what I've made a decision for. Okay. Just with one or two minutes left. An illustration of what I'm talking about comes from Ezekiel, where you remember the story about the, the dry bones, the, the valley of dry bones? God brings Ezekiel to that valley and says, what do you see? Sure, I see what everybody else sees, right? Valley of dry bones. There's been a battle here. People died. The sun bleached their bones. It's a terrible place, but it was a valley of death. Well, that's good. You've seen right. That's what you see. We don't need a whole lot to show what's actually going on. He said, then he asked one question. He says, and this is the thing that separates us from the 21st century Canadian church and the ecclesia. He asked, can these bones live? And you know what the answer was? Here's the 21st century Canadian church. I don't know. It's like, why are you asking me? I can't do anything about this. And you know, the church in Canada has been getting away with that for a long time. I don't know. If anything's going to happen, you got to do it. Does God let him off the hook? No, he says, speak to the bones, prophesy to these dead bones, start decreeing and declaring something. 
that's when the ecclesia comes alive in us and we start speaking to those things that have no hope of shifting and changing by the spirit of the grace of God. And all of a sudden, there's a rattling that goes on and bone begins to come to bone and then skin begins to come on the bone and then life is, is, is injected into those sinews and those bones and they stand up a living army. See, you and I have a choice. What are we going to be? Are we going to be the church of man-made design? Or are we going to be the ecclesia that actually takes cities and introduces the laws and the DNA and the heart and the culture of the kingdom of God into it and changes it for the good? We have a decision to make. Sooner or later, that decision will be made by others rather than us. There's a song I'd like you to follow along with the team on this morning. It gives an idea of what I call ecclesia worship because it's, uh, it's not singing ballads about God and what God can do, but it's activating something in your heart. And when you sing this, there's that phrase that says, we speak to nations. At one point, I want you to turn it and say, I speak to nations. God bless you. Amen. Let's sing it as we leave. We speak to nations. We speak to nations. Be open. We speak to nations. The kingdom is coming